Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Good morning, East Lake. My name is Kelsey Eber. Thanks for having me here this morning. Um, I am one of the co-pastors at New Song Community Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. Um, I've been pastoring there since September of 2019, uh, which is a really interesting time to start pastoring um, because it was just a few months later that uh, we shut down. And so uh, it's been interesting to to re-figure out what it looks like to be together in church, as I'm sure you all are, are navigating through as well. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading from the book of Acts. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Um, so if you'll follow along, I'm starting in Acts uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes and he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. I'm going to stop there and let's pray. God, thank you for your, for your holy word, for your scriptures. Thank you for this space and these people that are gathered here today as we are all on this journey of learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus uh, and to live out your love. God, I ask that no one will leave this space today without being reminded of how deeply, deeply loved they are. Amen. How many of you have lost friends or family over the past couple of years? And I don't mean that they have passed away, but how many of you have grieved broken relationships or a, a slow separation in light of all that has happened over the last few years? I have. And the thoughts that go through my head in the midst of this grief sound something like this. How can I maintain a relationship with someone who holds such basic, such different basic values than I do? Or what does it look like to spend time with someone who sees the world so differently? What would we talk about or what would we not talk about? What would we avoid talking about? What commonalities do we have to sustain us? Now, if you haven't heard this account in Acts before, it's important to note that the Saul who I'm referring to is the Paul of New Testament letter writing fame. But at this point in Acts, he's still, his name is still Saul, still considered Saul. But this limited passage actually doesn't give us much information about who Saul is. So I want to back up a little bit. 
In his early years as a child, Saul is taken to Jerusalem, which is the Mecca of religious life. And he's taught by highly respected Jewish Pharisees, Jewish leaders. Later, he explains this education that he, or that he was educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. Later, when Saul is a young man, he is a part of witnessing a man named Stephen who comes before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, to defend his belief in Jesus. And Paul is, or sorry, Saul is in charge of watching the jackets or the overgarments while these men stone Stephen to death. So it isn't shocking when Saul begins leading violent persecutions against the young Christian church. He goes from house to house, dragging men and women to prison. And when found guilty of what's considered blasphemy, Saul calls for them to be murdered, to be stoned to death. And now he is off to continue his mission to new cities outside of Jerusalem. And also, not but, and also, Saul is a deeply spiritual man. He has strong religious convictions. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards probably better than any of us do in here. Saul has adored and worshipped God, the creator, his entire life. I think it's, it's easy to get stuck in the Saul who murders and forget about the Saul who loves God. Because to Saul, getting rid of Christians is a necessary part of doing God's will. These Christians are teaching blasphemous heresy, a profane attack against God. They are threatening the people of God, the Jewish people, and the holiness of the law and the temple. It must be God's will that they are silenced. He cannot let them take over. And Saul can justify his actions by looking back on Israel's history, not to mention his own experiences, what he has grown up knowing. He can look back to Phineas, who killed an Israelite man and a man and a Midianite woman who were defying the law of God, or Elijah, who killed the prophets of Baal, or Matthias, who's the father of the Maccabees, the Jewish leaders, who used violence to root out the enemies of God among the people. But Jesus. And this is the hang-up for Saul. But it's important that we are aware of the entirety of Saul's person, lest we start pointing fingers. Because while it's probably true that most of us have not killed others or put people in a physical jail because of our spiritual or religious convictions, I do wonder if we are guilty of putting those who live and believe differently in a metaphorical prison. What I mean by this is that we tend to have beliefs and opinions about the way things are supposed to be. And I would argue that Christians especially have beliefs and opinions about the way things are supposed to be. And we often take it upon ourselves to fight against those who think and believe differently. And at least in my lifetime, this has never been more apparent than in the last few years. As a Jewish man, Saul was deeply convinced of his call to be different, to have responsibility to God, to maintain that difference, to be set apart from the rest of the world, from culture. 
and to not compromise that faith. It's the foundation of his life. And anyone who grew up in 90s youth group culture recognizes this, right? Do not conform, counterculture, do not be worldly. But today within the body of Christ, within the church in the United States, we have been recognized more for what we are against than what we are for. I bet that you could go out and ask a stranger on the street what the church is against, and they could list off three things without giving it much thought. And what's more is that even within the church, we divide because we differ over what the things are that we're against. In March, I finished a seminary degree, and in one of my final classes, we had this assignment to post five pictures of, or post five different pictures that represent us. It didn't have to be personal pictures. Some people posted like a sports team person. I did not, but that was an option. Um, and then we were to find that person based on the pictures who we had the least in common with and, wait for it, explain how or why we would get along. At first, I was excited because it seemed like a fairly mindless assignment, right? Not a big, lengthy research paper. But that last part, that second part was a challenge. I kept seeing pictures that I wanted to comment on. Oh, you have kids that are similar in age than me. Or somebody posted a Young Life picture and my husband used to be on staff with Young Life. Or another person loved musical theater. Even my eyes were drawn to the pictures of people who looked like me or, or were similar in age to me. I had to be very intentional to find someone who I had the least in common with. Even to get my eyes to stop scanning over people. This is called tribalism. And I'm not using this term as an appropriation for indigenous tribes, but rather an anthropological term that explains human social organizations. I read an article a few weeks ago on homophily, which is a word that social scientists refer to as the bias that everyone holds towards people who remind us of ourselves. It's called people like me syndrome. And this isn't necessarily wrong, but when our homophily is threatened, when what we hold to be true and comfortable and familiar is threatened, we revert to tribalism and we gather more closely and more tightly to those who remind us of ourselves. And then to protect our people like me group, we fight against any other threat. In the church... This means that when some value that I hold is threatened, I hold tighter and move closer to those who also uphold that value, and I fight against that threat. It's fear-based. Saul is passionate for God. Saul believes that his Jewish faith is being threatened by those who believe in Jesus. And as a fear-based response, Saul intends to destroy them in order to protect and honor God. I wonder what religious or moral or spiritual zeal looks like for you. I'll confess what it looks like for me. It looks like speaking negatively about others whom I don't believe represent Jesus the way I think he should be represented. 
It looks like speaking out against someone on Facebook who says that women cannot be pastors. It looks like rolling my eyes when I hear messages that are counter to my own theology or avoiding certain religious groups or authors or podcasts who have a different way of seeing the world. Sometimes it means sending snarky Instagram posts to defend my point to other people who also agree with me. So it really is a good thing that Jesus has me on his side defending him. Because I'm not sure what he would do without me. Now I could go through and defend those things, right? How can a church or those people or that group say that this is what Jesus is like? Or that person is spreading hate and not love, etc. Yet the Christian witness, the positive impact of Christians, of Jesus followers, in the Western world specifically is in a dire state right now. And I don't think it's necessarily because the gospel is being threatened by culture. I think it's because the church has waged a civil war, a war from within. And those outside of the church are like, no, thank you. We will let you deal with this awkward family feud on your own. In fact, I might argue, I I will argue, that there is so much good going on outside of the church that has no religious affiliation, and we are missing out on it because we are so distracted by our own civil war. And in our pride, we often see problems, whether in the church or in our schools or in our families or in the world, as threats to be fought against instead of mirrors that reveal the part that we play in it. A few years ago, I was putting my son to bed, and some of you might know bedtime tends to be the time when all the feelings and the emotions and the stories come out from the whole day. And and, in anger and frustration, he said, do you remember when Piper hit me today? And I said, yeah, buddy, that was was a bummer. I'm sorry that happened. Um, Was it after you hit her? To which he said, we're not talking about that right now. A problem with the Western church is that our mindset tends to be, it's not us, it's them. And that's exactly Saul's mindset. I have to destroy them because they are the problem. Saul is even encouraged by religious leaders, his faith leaders. They give him permission. Those are the letters he's talking about in verse 2, to go out and destroy Jesus' followers. So off he goes on his mission trip to do the work of God. I'm sure he's in prayer and contemplation, asking God to prepare his heart and mind. And imagine his surprise when a light from heaven shines down on him. But I don't think it's the light that is as shocking as the words, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Other versions say, why are you persecuting me? I'm sure Saul is thinking, what? I'm not harassing you. I'm serving you. I am fighting for you. I'm defending you. Which leads us to an important question. Does God need to be defended? Does God ask to be defended? Maybe you think about 1 Peter 3.15, which was a key verse in my early evangelism training as a teenager, and it's a great verse. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But sometimes we forget the second part. But do this with gentleness and respect. I also wonder if that verse is not so much about defending God as much as explaining why we believe what we believe. How did you get here? What's your story? Again, with gentleness and respect. So like not putting people in prison. Because I'm not convinced that God ever asks us to defend him or to fight for him. I could be wrong. I could be missing some verses. And if that is highly offensive to you, please send Brent an email. (laughs) It's the best part about being a guest pastor. Just send all those comments to Brent. But I do know for sure what God commands us to do, does command us to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Go through the whole world and preach the gospel, the good news. I defined gospel last week in my church as God fulfilling what God has promised on repeat. God promises, God fulfills. God promises, God fulfills. That is the good news. These are our marching orders. Love everyone and tell everyone about God's love. The church, by its very existence, is a single body of people separated by differences, Jews and Gentiles, who because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus are united in such a way that God's ways are made known to the whole world. This is the message of our faith, unity in differences. God does not need us to defend God or the church or the gospel, but rather the witness of the church is integrally connected and maybe even dependent upon our unity. I think that the work of the church is falsified or undermined by division or at the very least hindered and frustrated. I do want to make a slight caveat that I'm wondering if maybe some of you are thinking about. There is an example in scripture where where Jesus shows us something a little different. When he lashes out in anger towards the merchants in the temple. What do we do with that? (laughs) Because Jesus was definitely not gentle when he turned over tables in rage, but it is through the turning of the tables that we see that God is always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. That God is always on the side of the least of these, whether in culture or in church. Because whether we like to believe it or not, the church has leasted people and God is always on their side. That is who we are asked to defend. God doesn't ask us to defend God or the gospel. We preach the gospel. We proclaim the love of God with our lives we defend the oppressed and the marginalized. Do you see the difference? Because I'm not saying that we stay silent, but to remember that we are for people, all people, regardless of whatever issue we could come up with or, or regardless of what we even think about those people, because we know what God thinks about those people, deeply loved, no matter what. Unity in the church also does not mean being unsafe or not having boundaries. 
Abuse in any form from someone within the church is not to be ignored or undermined for the sake of unity. Exclusion or intolerance of other people, racism, prejudice, is not to be tolerated for the sake of unity. Suppression of women in leadership is not to be endured for the sake of unity. These situations are the church behaving antithetical to what Jesus is all about. They're opposite of who Jesus is. God calls the body of Christ, the church, to be unified in the name of love, not for the sake of evil. So what do we do? I think we start by speaking out in love and declaring what we are for. Because we are for people. We are for forgiveness and freedom and resurrection and redemption. We are for new life, for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We can speak out loud and proud because there are so many things we are for. So many beautiful healing things that we are for. And in doing so, We spread the good news and the love of God. Let's continue reading in this passage, starting with verse 10. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Yes, Lord. And the Lord instructed him, Go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man. People say he's done terrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priests to arrest everyone who calls on your name. And the Lord said, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here, he sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly flakes fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after eating, he regained his strength. He stayed with the disciples in Damascus for several days. Right away, I love that, right away, he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. He is God's son, he declared. Who is this story about? It's a trick question because the story is about who every story in scripture is about. The story is about God. Saul and Ananias are people just like us. They hurt others. They doubt. They are fearful. They are complicated. But God. The story really could be about any one of us, any relationship that we're in. There's hurt and sadness, anger, fear. But God. Both Saul and Ananias choose to respond to God. And because of that, this becomes a story of redemption and of unlikely relationship. Saul has been abusing Christians, and he's blinded. 
God literally closes his eyes and he stops seeing the way he's always seen things his whole life and he is able to see things in a brand new way. And Ananias, as a follower of Jesus, is asked to take a really big risk. Ananias knows that Saul is a threat to his life, to his livelihood, to his family and his people, but he takes that risk. And he calls Saul brother. He welcomes him into his group, his his people-like-me group. And Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized to be a part of the church who he was harassing like right before. And with that same passion and zeal, he repents. And repent can be a complicated word for some people. It could come with a lot of hurt or baggage, but the way it's intended is in the Greek, and it means the word is metanoa, and it means to change your mind. Because of an encounter with God, both Saul and Ananias change their mind in order to truly live out Jesus' love and humility. Because you see, another aspect of this encounter is a belief that is foundational to the Christian faith. And that's because of God, people can change. If we believe in a God who became a man and then died and then literally rose from the dead, we also have to believe that our hearts towards people can change. And if we pray and intercede and cry out to God, then we also have to believe the people change. And if people change, and if Saul changed, then who am I demonizing whom God calls beloved? In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he says, so then from this point on, we won't recognize people by human standards. We won't recognize people by human standards because to do so is to ignore and reject the hope of change in Christ. Paul continues in Ephesians, we both have access to the Father through Christ by the one spirit. I love that unifying language. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people and you belong to God's household. If we are choosing division over transformation, we resist the Spirit of God. Our resistance to inner change dulls our ability to hear and respond to the Spirit, which in turn generates further division. It's a distraction. Because God's plan has always been the things will be gathered together in Christ. This has always been the providence for the redeeming and healing of the world. From way back in Genesis, from the very beginning, God has been saying, let's do this thing together. So as Christians in the United States, what does it look like to seek unity over uniformity? I think we start by confronting the ways we stand in opposition to one another. To see it in all its ugliness. To stop numbing ourselves by by being surrounded only by people who agree with me. Or ignoring the deep wounds 
and pretending that it's them and not us. Because until we feel this pain, until we acknowledge the damage, we're not going to do the work of healing. But once we do feel this pain and acknowledge it, our response is repentance. Repentance, metanoia, to change our mind pretty naturally leads to a state of curiosity. Asking questions of others, not to argue with them or to change anyone's mind, and really not even to share our own point, but asking questions because we genuinely care and we authentically want to learn and grow because we love them. And true curiosity leads to authentic listening, listening to learn and to understand. And when we listen, we realize that like Paul and Ananias, we really aren't so different after all. We are all extremely human-y. Humans created to love and be loved by God. So you see, this process is not one of striving more or efforting our way into uncomfortable conversations or, or having awkward relationships because the Bible tells me so. Rather, it's a humble acceptance that God loves me and that God loves you just as much. I'm going to end with part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Church, if we are for God, then we must be for people, all people, seeking unity not in spite of, but because of our differences. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.